You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 14, John Atak. John Atak is something of a legend in the history of Scientology. He was with the organization while L. Ron Hubbard was still alive and still creating the tech. He later pioneered the independent Scientology movement, and then left the group altogether. He has written the definitive history of the organization, a book called Let's Sell Them a Piece of Blue Sky, and he was also instrumental in the creation of one of the most authoritative sources on the history of L. Ron Hubbard, a book called Bareface Messiah by Russell Miller. Since leaving the organization, John has been involved in numerous lawsuits. As a consultant, he has helped numerous people leave groups and decompress and deal with reintegration. And he now has a YouTube channel where he and his son delve into topics about thought reform, coercion, and how to protect yourself from predators. Welcome, John. John, can you briefly explain how you became involved in the Church of Scientology and how far you got? I was 19. I came back from, I'm a drummer and I'd been playing some gigs in Toulouse in France and things had gone badly wrong and I got stranded there. When I got home, my um, girlfriend had disappeared. We'd been living together 15 months then and she just disappeared. So it was heartbreak basically. And I read um, Science of Survival by Ron Hubbard, which was actually many years later as the historian of the subject, I discovered it was written by Richard DeMille uh, from notes and uh, by Hubbard, but uh, Richard DeMille, the son of Cecil B. DeMille, which is, you know, another set of stories. I read that. I, I checked it out as best I could. I rang an Anglican priest who said he knew nothing about it. I, I talked with a, a psychiatrist that I'd, I'd met who knew nothing about it. I talked with a a doctor, a general practitioner, who know nothing about it, which is kind of weird because only three years before there'd been a massive um, press uh, jamboree o- over the British government report on Scientology, which is a thoroughly damning document, largely composed of Aaron Hubbard's own statements. So uh, nobody warned me. So I went in, I got involved. I was involved for nine years. I was never what is called a total convert. Uh, that is, I was never a live-in member. I was never on the staff. I was not in the sea organization. The two times I was shouted at, I shouted back. I was not abused or humiliated because as I'm creative, a you know, musician, writer, artist, you get this special treatment. Even if you don't have any money to give them, you get this celebrity status. So I was, you know, I had a good time. You know, when one of their, their lead attorney, Kendrick Moxon in a deposition, asked me, uh, had I been brainwashed in Scientology? I said, no. I was hypnotized a few times, but not brainwashed. I got up to the uh, fifth 
OT level, operating Thetan level, upper level. So I was supposedly clear. I did all of the release grades. Um, I trained, I did six, what they call major counseling courses. So I was a method one auditor and a Dianetic auditor and a class two auditor. I had the great good fortune that I actually received very little auditing because I moved so quickly through it all. But I got in, you know, I was two levels short of the 27th and top level. In fact, technically, I did the 26th one because it's a training course for the 27th one. They've only released one level since then, OT8. So I basically felt that Hubbard had left the building because things were getting extraordinarily unpleasant. There was a list of 900 people who were declared suppressive. And when I questioned this, I was told their names were on the list, so they were suppressive. And I pointed out that you actually had to have a committee of evidence and you know some sort of little mock trial and declare findings. You couldn't just put people's name on a list. That wasn't permissible within Hubbard's teaching, but I was told it now was. And so I left. And I found myself at the, the center of the independent Scientology movement. About half the membership left. There were probably about 50,000 members internationally in 1983 when I left. They were claiming, I think, 8 million, but um, they were counting the little body thetans too, you know, the little spirits attached to you. I think I found myself at the center of it, um, setting up an independent Scientology, and I stopped believing. Fundamentally, because a bunch of documents uh, collected by journalists who uh, worked under the assumed name of Michael Lynn Shannon found their way to me. And I read these documents, and unlike most people who, you know, as I later found, who've been involved in, in such groups, I didn't seek to justify them. I didn't seem to seek to you know, claim they were fake, they, they look pretty genuine to me. And I was able over the next several years to verify every document in that pile. You know, he'd failed a course in atomic and molecular physics at university and went on to claim he was a nuclear physicist and had a doctorate and was a civil engineer and all of these sort of lies. And for me, that was the end of it because I believed what Hubbard had said, which is that the road to truth must be trod with true steps and that honesty is sanity. And so by his own, you know, logic, he, he was not sane and he was not trustworthy. So unlike most members, rather than picking away at it and deciding that some of it worked and some of it didn't and that sort of thing, I rejected the lot. I, I said, I'm from this point, I'm going to say, I, I don't believe any of this and I will inspect the material piecemeal, bit by bit. And any that I feel is true, I, I will readopt. And I must say, there's nothing significant that came. You know, it's now 36 years ago, and I've never wanted to pick up the cans again and, you know, have any auditing. There's never been a moment where I've, I've doubted my decision. And I, you know, became the historian of the group. I wrote a book, which is now called Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, which remains the only history of the group. And I, I'm not sure there's any history of any of the other post-war cult groups. It just doesn't seem to happen. You know, academics write papers about it, but doing a thoroughgoing history saying, you know, this is the biography of, of the, the leader. This is, you know, the history step by step of the group. It doesn't seem to happen very much. I became involved, uh, Russell Miller, who was working for the Sunday Times, and I think at the time was the highest paid journalist in the UK. He came to me and wanted to do some pieces for the Sunday Times. He was trying to find where Hubbard was. This was in January 86. 
and um, the news of Hubbard's death came out about a week after I signed the contract to be his researcher. They went ahead with these very good pieces and he decided he was a bio biographer, had written biographies of Hefner and Getty by that time, would write a, a very good biography of Conan Doyle later. I'd written a book which I couldn't get published, so I let him have the manuscript and by strange happenstance, the manuscript came back to me. I, I now have it with his handwritten notes on it of which chapter titles he was going to use and which bits. So his book, which is a very good book because he also did great interviews. He interviewed uh, Ron Hubbard's aunt. You know, so that all of these, they make these claims about him being a blood brother of the Blackfoot uh, Pakuni people. And he interviews the aunt who was in the house throughout Hubbard's childhood who says, no, uh, we didn't hear anything about the Blackfoot people, <laughs> you know, uh, that's completely made up. So he got lots of interviews, he got lots of documents, he added that, so, you know, probably about half of his book came from, from my work and half of it came from his work. That's Barefaced Messiah, which is still the only good, you know, thorough biography of Hubbard. I then spent 12 years helping people who were coming out, found that many of them had complex post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they were in a really bad way, uh, particularly the people who'd been in the sea organization who are virtually slaves. They work a 90 hour week. At that time, they weren't allowed to see their children very often. Since David Miscavige took over, they're not allowed to have children. So that solved that problem. And they'd literally be earning $2 a week for this 90 hours. And they'd be in terrible, fetid conditions, you know, packed into dormitories and I felt embarrassed that I spent nine years involved without ever realizing that there were these people who lived on rice and beans and nothing else. You know, I remember a guy boasting to me that, yeah, but we got a potato with cheese on a Sunday sometimes. You know, it's just, you're kidding me. You know, that what had started out as what was meant to be a, a way of relieving trauma with Dianetics had become a way of traumatizing people. The end of it was that when Hubbard died, he left $648 million, and yet he'd forbidden toilet rolls to uh, his staff because they weren't producing enough. Um, so they'd had to go and steal phone directories, you know, to... Uh, just so that awful thing. I spent 12 years, I was involved in about 150 court cases as a consultant. I was registered as an expert witness on Scientology in the High Court in 1987 in one of Russell Miller's cases. Um, I was usually in the background of those cases providing documents. We won a lot of cases. I charged almost nothing. Clients, in fact, who took $14 million, I was paid $2,000 for, for the work I did on those cases. Just because you leave and you have this kind of crazy idea that you've got to be totally ethical, which you have got to be, but being totally ethical includes not charging people money. So um, I saw, I've been involved in the recovery of about 600 people, three of whom paid me anything. Um, so I don't have any money in the bank. So if anybody's listening and would like to send me some money, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. They sued me. I tried to sue them. We ended up with, they sued me in New York first. And my life became a misery with private detectives, you know, with the full-on harassment that is usual, the, the gossip campaign saying I was a rapist, I, an attempted murderer, a, a child molester, a heroin addict. I've never in my life actually, as far as I know, been in the same room as any heroin, let alone been addicted to it or, or sold it to anyone. 
they put out smear campaigns. I was followed by private detectives. My whole family were approached by a, an American private detective who flew over specially to do it. Uh, my father was very ill at the time, so it was not a welcome intrusion into his life. Um, this guy, the guy also traveled to Australia to meet a, you know, my, the girlfriend who'd <laughs> run away from me when I was 19. Um, I got apology calls from people that they'd talked to him. You know, people I hadn't heard from for 20 years or something were, were phoning up to say, oh, this guy came around and we didn't realize who he was and we're sorry we talked to him. But it, it was, uh, it, it became un unbearable. The, the, uh, I, in 1993, I, the head of intelligence came out to do a, some harassment on me and ended up three hours later breaking down in tears. And the next day came and told me her terrible story and admitted that she'd got four agents in my close circle because anybody who came to me I'd talked to and uh, one in training. Uh, she proved that by telling me what one of the you know I'd said to one of the agents the week before and um, she said that they'd spent more than two million pounds in harassing me in, in trying to close me down and it just became too much because there was no support from government no support from the courts no support from anywhere really uh, from ex-members as well um, so I, you know I went bankrupt uh, over litigation costs you know because they couldn't pay my lawyers basically in the end british libel laws are revered the world around however if you are on the wrong end of one it becomes a rich man's game and the person who has the deepest pockets wins and the goal is to make your opponent spend themselves into oblivion i lost two cases against them one of them was a libel case but they never got to trial they were all lost, all lost in what's called the paper mountain. That's what the Scientology lawyers call it, where you just keep issuing this stuff. Six months later, Lord uh, Justice Wolfe, who'd investigated the English system, uh, this was back in, or oh, what, 95, said, it is the case in English justice that he with the deepest pockets wins. Since then, our libel laws have changed significantly. I don't think they'd have been able to, I mean, I don't think they'd have won the case if it had gone to court anyway, frankly, because I'd suggested really that this woman had used Scientology counselling techniques on someone, which is probably not libelous to a Scientologist. But it, it, it put me in a situation where I realised that, that there was no protection. And uh, I'd lost a five-bedroom house. My marriage had collapsed. My health was gone. Uh, from all the stress of 12 years of this. And so I withdrew in 1996. I, I sort of went, I'm not going to do this anymore because there's not even much in the way of gratitude, let alone support for doing it. And they kept on harassing me for another four years um, because that's the way it is. And eventually, I, you know, they stopped and another dozen years went by. A TV producer friend said, would you, would you come on this? BBC program, The Big Questions. And I was very hesitant and then went, yeah, okay. And they made a mistake. If they had harassed me after that, I would have gone back into the shadows, but they didn't. So I'm on a television show that, where I talk about the materials of operating Thetan level three, Xenu and the body Thetans, as publicized by South Park so beautifully. 
that there was no I didn't even get a lawyer's letter and that showed that it was safe maybe to talk and at the same time I realized that for the most part and I hate to say this people who've been invo deeply involved total converts who've been deeply involved with um, an authoritarian group or indeed an authoritarian relationship don't tend to recover unaided what you get is a kind of bicker fest where for years people will talk about the hard experience you know what a dreadful time they had which is fair enough you, you should talk about that but they become locked in this cycle of grievance rather than actually digging deep and finding out whether they still believe any of the dogma of the group they belong to and most recovery manuals you know that i mean the one i recommend is lalich and tobias take back your life which is a, a wonderful book um but nonetheless it doesn't i think go far enough in saying if you've come to believe something um then you need to question it because otherwise it will carry on you know that so with scientologists for example you're taught about the overt motivator sequence you always had ugly words for things and overt is where you commit an offense against another person a sin or a crime and a motivator is your justification for doing it which will be how they hurt you and hubbard said well usually you'll hurt them first and then they'll hurt you back and then you'll blame them well this could be so but it, elsewhere it's called karma vipaka and when scientologists leave they start now believing in karma and i say to them so you've read the hindu and buddhist some of the hindu and buddhist material on this and they go no i say well you know that would be a good idea to to think about it a bit more deeply and indeed there's a a little piece about karma and caste on my youtube channel because mathematically karma is not possible you know there are too many living entities in the universe for them all to be for their experience to be integrated so smoothly and beautifully so that the 417 people get onto a plane on the same moment and it you know that's the plane that goes down the the mathematics necessary for that to happen the, the laws of chance run so far into the trillions that i'm afraid it's not possible in terms of it being a moral guide as the buddhists tend to say yeah there's something there but they'll come away believing that or for example they'll still believe in reincarnation in in past lives as alistair crowley and ron hubbard both called called it uh, without realizing that to the buddhists and the hindus this is a dreadful thing you know it's called the fear of the eternal return in buddhism it's not a oh in my next lifetime i'll be able to do this you're trying to escape the wheel of suffering but they'll continue to believe and i'm not saying what people should or shouldn't believe that that's up to you what, what you believe but i am saying that we need to inspect our beliefs and if we've been through an authoritarian experience where our emotions have been you know severely damaged our emotional autonomy has been questioned then we do really need to look at what the dogma is what the doctrine is and say you know do i still believe that you know jesus raised people from the dead and you might do and that's fine i don't that this i don't mind about it's just the problem with uninspected material and unquestioned assumptions as i call them that to become emotionally autonomous which for me is the goal of human maturity of growing up um, to become emotionally autonomous we are not being bullied and pushed around either by people or ideas and so 
I came back in 2013 and for a couple of years wrote for Tony Ortega. There are about 70 blogs there about recovery and how to think about specifically Scientology and it's what I call its implanting system, the way that it gets people to believe and behave in a certain way. Um, and then I stopped doing that. So I gave a five-day conference called Getting Clear with 27 other participants in Toronto. And I figured I'd nailed it there. And if anybody wants to kick out $50, they can rent it and have a look at it on Vimeo. And it should, if you know, even for people who've not been in Scientology, it, it, it should show you know, a lot of, you know, because Scientology does everything that you can do to somebody. My friend Christian Sherko used to give my little booklet, um, Scientology, the Cult of Greed, to, to anybody who approached him, you know, as a first book to read, because he said, well, Scientology does everything. They'll find something in there that's been done to them, you know. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.